Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. We've Today we have got a really interesting show. I've got Dr. Donish Gary, and he's going to help us all understand the need to become an advocate for our own personal health care. He is a surgeon, a scientist, an educator, an entrepreneur. He has worked at the University of Colorado, Cleveland Clinic, which is one of my favorite, Case Western Reserve University. He's published more than 200 scientific articles. He's led numerous scientific and clinical panels and trained hundreds of students, residents, fellows, and general faculty. Following the implementation of the Affordable Care Act and approval of its mandates by the Supreme Court 2010 through 2012, he founded Bowtie Medical to create systemic innovations for bringing efficiency and value into the healthcare delivery system. And I don't think there's a listener out there that hasn't experienced some frustration dealing with the healthcare delivery system. He shares his views on healthcare and the path forward in his new book, Health Guardianship, The Remedy to the Sick Care System. And he has a podcast, Why Can't We Have It All? The Missing Pieces in Our Healthcare. Dr. Donish Gary, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you, Lee. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. So, and I really do. I've been through healthcare with my parents and my husband's parents and understanding how to work the system. And I, it's very frustrating for me. Sometimes it's very overwhelming for me. And I always felt that I was the one that had to be the advocate, you know, for my mom to make sure that she got what she needed and what I found that as long as she was ill or she had a, she was sick, I could work that. But when I tried to work on her wellness and preventative, I had a lot harder time. Yeah, so yeah, you're not alone. So I think we all uh, have been in that shape or in that position one way or another. The fact of the matter is that the healthcare is a complex uh service. It deals with our vulnerability, it deals with our mortality, and and so forth. That's why, historically, uh, if you go back, the medicine man and the religious man were the same. Actually, in Pharaoh's time, in the old Egyptian time, they used to bury the medicine man with the king uh, to have the pleasure of taking care of him after, after life. They, as, and as the healthcare is becoming more complex, I think the need for what you call the advocacy is increasing uh, for a number of reasons. Because the current model of uh, healthcare, which I call it the sick care, uh, because it only takes care of us when we are sick and when we basically have developed symptoms or conditions. At the same time, the problem is that the sick care is fragmented. Uh, basically, they refer us from one specialist to another specialist, and that leaves us with a number of uh, questions that, frankly, most people don't find the time uh, to get the answers from the doctors. Because, as I've discussed in the book, uh, we have built a systematic misalignment system. One of the misalignments is 
the doctors are forced to see more and more patients uh, at the same time. Uh, the average time that the doctor sees the patient is less than five minutes in the country. So imagine you drive for half an hour or what, depending on where you are, and you go and you wait for half an hour, and then you charge and zoom in and zoom out to be seen for five minutes. So, and that is adding to the frustrations of uh, people who want to spend time and get their questions answered, and more importantly, to get some advice on the wellness. How can I basically have a healthier life and not to get sick? Well, I know one of my biggest frustrations was when I was trying to help my, my family was, I know what America's healthcare system, it's the most expensive in the world, but we don't get the better outcomes. And that was so frustrating for me because I felt like that we're spending all this and we're, we're not getting much. And certainly that th- things did change almost over a decade ago when we brought in the Affordable Care Act. Is that really what prompted you to start Bowtie Medical? Um, well, my history goes back to, uh, as you said, yes, I was a very successful, I'm a very successful surgeon scientist, went through the rank of academia, directed a center at Cleveland Clinic, became the chair of a couple of departments. And because of that success, uh, I was asked to serve on the board of a health system, about $3 billion in revenue, about 11 hospitals. And during the serving on the board, my eyes opened uh, to the fact that the healthcare really has become a sick care. Uh, the healthcare in our country now is delivered through 5,000 hospitals that are, have become financial institutions. Uh, like any other financial institutions, uh, our system set up a projected clinical volumes that we needed to generate that year in terms of surgeries, procedure, tests, and so forth. Those clinical volume targets were shoved down the, through the ranks, through the chairmen like myself, to the doctors and the faculty. And uh, that is how the system has become. Uh, that is, uh, so I call it a three plus three. Uh, number one is we have become the most expensive uh, healthcare system in the world. We are spending twice as much as our European or Japanese colleagues uh, or peers. We spend 11,500 per capita. Japanese and Europeans are spending three to 5,000 per capita. And our outcomes are actually tailing them. Uh, we have. Uh, we don't have the best longevity, the best uh, life expectancy. Uh, a lot of our health outcomes, such as infant mortality rates and other failing, actually close to some of the third world countries. So we are paying too expensively for the healthcare, and it's a misprice. We are getting the lower value. Number two thing is why is, uh, is like that? Because why we are so expensive? And the answer is these are independent research from uh, Dartmouth Institute of Medicine and others that I was able to uh, connect the dots. Uh, the 50% of what we do in the current system is waste. Waste defined in healthcare as services, procedures, surgeries, and so forth that uh, we do it in the sick care system because we get paid for it, but do not deliver uh, the desired health outcome. Uh, so uh, if I take you for an example, this is how, again, my eyes opened up. As a part of the board member, my job was to go and acquire primary care physicians uh, along the geography where uh, we were interested in expanding our system. 
So I would go and uh, interview the doctors, say hello doctors, four or five of them in practice in the community, say we want to hire you, this is your salary, this is your uh, bonuses. And, um, and then three weeks later, four weeks later, I'll show up with a few administrators and tell them, uh, listen, your numbers are not basically catching up to the level to support your salary. Uh, you're only seeing 20, 25 patients a day. You need to start seeing 40, 50, 60 patients a day. And when they said, oh, we can't take care of patients, you know, 60 patients less than, you know, five minutes, you know, in an eight hours uh, uh, of work or 10 hours of work, I say, really, you don't need to spend that much time with the patient. As soon as a patient comes in with, a, let's say, a woman comes with the blood in their urine, uh, we call it microhematuria, is don't treat them with antibiotics at the moment. Send them to me so I can do a cystoscopy. I can do CT urogram. So because in the back of my mind, I wanted to generate more uh, clinical volume. And the same uh, is true for everything from head to toe. As you've seen, many of your audience probably remember this. When they go to doctor, the doctors order a whole series of labs and tests and so forth. Let's see what happens. And a part of this is that they want to diagnose. The part of it, though, goes back to the fact that uh, as soon as the doctors fell below that level of productivity, I would, they would be called to my office and I say, you know, your numbers don't look good. I'm going to withhold 10% of your salary. <laughs> There's a terminology in the current system used called pay for performance, P4P. And what that is, is that the more patients you see, the more tests and uh, procedures you order, the higher chance you get more money. And we have transferred this to a very kind of... Uh, uh, really accounting methodology. We call it the, the related value unit, RVUs. The more RVUs the doctors generate, the more money they make. So what this has done, the employment of the physicians by the hospitals has created the first dysfunction and the first misalignment uh, between the doctor and the patient. If 100 years ago, if I was the doctor and you and I lived in the same neighborhood, we both went to the same grocery store, the same butchery and bakery, we knew each other, and I knew I'm your agent. I'm there to serve you and your family to stay healthy. That space, that relationship uh, now has been filled with at least 20 intermediaries, uh, with from insurance companies to the employers to the hospitals and so forth, and have made it most expensive for the consumer and intolerable, frankly, for doctors. Uh, most of doctors, they didn't go to medical school to become rich and wealthy. They went there because they wanted to help people. The current system by which the hospitals have become financial institutions is making extremely difficult for the doctors uh, to do uh, their intended work. So with that difficulty, and you know what, what puzzles me is because as we look ahead, I was reading a report by the World Health Organization and they're saying that by 2030, half of the worldwide economic impact of disability is going to come from brain-related diseases, Alzheimer's, dementia. So when I look ahead and I see, you know, used to, when I thought of a chronic condition, I thought of something more like cancer or, you know, a disease, but we've progressed there. And when, when you look at where we are with brain health, that's my concern, is how are the, sure. the one out of three it, adults are going to suffer from either Alzheimer's or dementia. How are they going to get the care they need? 
Right. So uh, you picked up a very good subject because uh, mental health, as you mentioned, is the kind of next level of chronic conditions. Uh, as you have witnessed in our country, the rate of obesity is increasing significantly. Uh, now somewhere about in some states, uh, uh, half of the population are obese. The rate of diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, increasing uh, and so forth. So let me take you through a little historical background to give this uh, kind of historical perspectives. Um, uh, and as you know, uh, uh, I call this health guardianship and I called it a bow tie health guardianship. If you imagine the bow tie, the bow tie is made of a knot and a wing on the right side and a wing on the left side, if you're looking at it. The bow tie uh, risk management is a concept that the knot of the bow tie is, a, is an event we want to prevent uh, or is an event that is undesirable. An example of that could be a chemical spill. An example of that could be a fire. An example of that would be an airline crash or, in our case, a chronic condition such as obesity, diabetes, mental health. What has happened over the past 100 years? About 100 years ago, infectious diseases were number one cause of death. Uh, you've read it in historically. And we soon discovered that in order to eliminate infectious diseases, we need to stay on the left side of the knot of the bow tie to prevent that. Uh, because it was difficult, if not impossible, for individuals to, uh, to have their own source of uh, water and food. So we created public health to create basically foundations for clean water, clean food, vaccination. And as a result, we eliminated the infectious diseases number one cause of death. Then we tackled the next set of conditions. This next cause of death was cardiovascular. The next one is cancer, then trauma. During that process, we focus on the right side of the bow tie. We waited for the chest pain to happen. We waited for stroke happen for obesity because now we worked on diagnostic and therapeutic tools to basically diagnose the heart attack with the angiography or diagnostic cancer with the CT scan or MRI and what have you. And as a result of this uh, effort, we have built uh, institutions called hospitals that financially benefit from delivering those basically diagnostic and therapeutic tools. And therefore, the more people have chronic conditions, the more people have obesity, cardiovascular, and so forth, the more these hospitals can produce uh, those clinical volumes and make more money. So at the same time, we have learned scientifically about the risk factors for these conditions, for obesity, for diabetes, for mental health, cardiovascular but we lack institutions or organizations who can focus on the left side of the bow tie to prevent these conditions from happening. So most of it is, is a kind of a lip service because the basically diseases and uh, people with sickness, they make revenue for the hospitals. But if you and I remain healthy throughout our entire 80, 90 years, we won't uh, basically hospital won't make any money off of it. So in order to eliminate or uh, reduce the risk of any future chronic uh, condition and including the existing chronic conditions, we need to turn our attention to the left side of the bow tie. 
and uh, basically identify the risk factors and try to reduce or eliminate them. And other industries have done this to extremely successful level. I'll give you an example of the airlines. The very first flight took place about 118 years ago. Within the past 118 years, we have created the safest mode of transportation in the world simply by focusing on the left side of the boat tide because we say, we said from the beginning that airline crash is not an option. We are going to put our entire scientific logistic uh, intelligence on the left side and prevent the airline crash. That's why the airline industry is filled with the pre-flight checklist and risk mitigation and risk reduction. And that's why the airlines have become the safest mode of transportation. The cars and animals kill more people on the ground, the airlines on the, on the air. It is time for us to turn our attention from the right side of the boat in healthcare to the left side. And that is what the term health guardianship uh, was born. And I, frankly, this uh, COVID opened my eyes to this because during the COVID, I realized the public health is incapable of uh, doing the massive testing we need. Uh, one side, the hospitals were really locked down to take care of the sickest of the sick, but majority of people needed help to uh, to remain healthy. So what you're asking is how our generation and the generation coming after us, our children, can reduce the chances of mental health in the you know 2030. And my answer is we need to our attention, turn it to the risk factors for mental health, turn it towards the left side, and. Those scientific information are out there. The only thing that is missing is organizations, institutions who can focus on that and frankly benefit from introducing products, services, solutions uh, that would keep people healthy. Hospitals are not those institutions. The hospitals currently are in the full business of sick care. They will wait for you and I to develop the Alzheimer until so they can basically develop uh, the pill or sell us the pill. We need to start turning our attention to the guarding our health. And biologically, we all know we could live uh, happily and uh, healthy, frankly, to over 100. I'll give you an example. Charles Munger is the vice chairman of the Hathaway uh, uh, Wellshire Company. He's, I think he's 99 now, <laughs> and he's running the company. So there's no limit to our biological capacity. It's really the reduction of the chronic conditions such as obesity, diabetes, mental health uh, that uh, has to happen to prevent, uh, to prevent this uh, future chronic condition. Well, and of course, mental health is, is my passion. And at the Brain Performance Center, we do a lot to help people to create neuroplasticity in their brain and help create regulation. And, you know, I always say the bad news is that we're one out of three of us is going to be impacted by it. But the good news is that there are things that we can all do that are within our own scope. And, you know, I mentioned Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic. I, those are such good resources to talk about the pillars of what good mental health is. And in my opinion, it starts with sleep. And that's something that so many people are not willing to change. And that's their sleep schedule. What's your opinion on sleep? Um, I, I definitely, I think, uh, I mean, I have an agreement and disagreement with you. Uh, uh, yeah. Is uh, there's no question that the health guardianship, one of the pillars of the health guardianship is good rest, 
sleep and rest. Uh, however, I disagree that the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic of the world are the, are the holders of health guardianship. Oh, no, 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 no. That wasn't, I just used them as a reference because I I do use them as a reference, but no, you're exactly right. Right, so is the, uh, again, we can, and I'm not an expert on the mental health, but I know for a fact, very much like uh, like, uh, COVID showed us, people who have uh, underlying chronic conditions such as obesity, people who have underlying conditions such as diabetes and so forth, they're much more prone to have mental health issues at the later stage of life. If people who are active and they are, so don't have the chronic conditions, the fact is they're the one who can go outside, be active with their families and communities, both physically and mentally active, and the chances of mental health uh, is much lower in those, in those cohorts. Um, again, I uh, don't have a magic solution to offer to people like yourself who are very, and correctly so, uh, concerned about the future of mental health. Uh, my overall uh, kind of surgeon scientist, uh, surgeon scientist hat is we have too long focused on disease management. We wait for the symptoms to happen before we act. Uh, one of my friends made the example is if I'm running on a meadow, uh, the current model of sick care and there's a cliff coming up. The current model of the hospital delivered sick care is they wait until I fall off the cliff and there's an ambulance down there to take me, you know, to care. Whereas the better solution is to put a number of warning signs up front and deviate my path from falling off the cliff. And I think that is where we are uh, dealing with the mental health. The mental health is uh, very much related to lack of of sleep, stress, uh, obesity, uh, diabetes, a lot of socioeconomical issues play a role. Uh, in the in the mental health, as you know, over the past uh, few days, a few years, the issue of the drug addiction and opioid is playing a significant role. Um, and so, my overall response to your concerns for the mental health is: we need to focus more and more on the again on the left side of the bow tie to see what are the risk factors for people who are at the highest risk for mental health, and really. Uh, focus on those respects. Well, and I think that for, for me, when I think of mental health, I think of prevention. You know, I mentioned sleep, diet certainly comes into play. Lifestyle choices has a lot to do with it. Um, but I think that if we can create an awareness, and I think that's what you, you have done with writing your book, and you, you use the word guardianship, I use the word advocate, I think we're saying this, we are trying to share the same message, and that is if we are responsible for taking care, making sure that we get the health care that we need. And I mean, I love the fact that the title of your book, Why Can't We Have It All?, We've got about five minutes before we go to break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the book. But if we use these last few minutes, what are the takeaways that you want our listeners to take with them? Number one takeaway is is be in charge of your own health. You could become the, you're the best doctor for yourself. And what I mean, not literally that everyone has gone to medical school, but everyone knows their body better than you know anyone. 
the doctors and people, the healthcare professionals, are really literal advisors to teach us how to listen to the signals of our body and basically uh, uh, deal with them. Uh, the first thing is, I think, one of the issues that has been the complications of this process that we've had over the past 70 to 80 years, people have let go of their own responsibility toward their own health. Uh, because think that, you know, once a year I go to my checkup exam and if everything is okay, the rest of the year I can do whatever I want. That is not true. Uh, really, there's significant uh, data coming out against the annual checkup exam because our biology really goes through changes every single day, every single minute. We need to have an awareness of our body on a daily basis, not on once a, once a year. Uh, there are some early indications of what are the healthy habits. We know that now by our weight is a is an indication of whether we are healthy or not. The body mass index of over 25 is not healthy. And and as you've seen, the the, the market is filled with the diet. I call them a yo-yo diet. At one point, whoever says, "By God, I have to take control of my weight." and I'm going to watch what I eat, I'm going to include exercise and physical activity into my, into my daily work. That is the first and the most important, the most fundamental part of taking control of uh, the health. Number two is, and you, you're correct, you and I both are saying the same advocacy versus health guardianship. And what I mean by guardianship means we need the health of the professionals, the doctors, nurses, and others whose job is to keep us healthy, whose job is not to uh, provide procedures and surgery for the hospitals. And the first solution for that is a movement has started in the, in the country called direct primary care. Some people call it concierge care, where you go and pay a monthly fee to a doctor's office, and the doctor becomes really your agent. You have 24-7 access to them, to the primary care, which is more than 90% of the care we need. And it is through that interaction that you can uh, start investing in your, own, in, in your own health. When we come back from the break, I'll tell you how basically we can take this concept of the health guardianship and transfer the existing sick care system into really a healthcare system. If we do this, if we identify the risk factors for our health and take control of them with the help of the professionals who are committed to keeping us healthy, they're not the agent of the hospitals or financial institutions that make money off of our, off of our sickness, we have the God-given biological potential to live well beyond 100 years of age without chronic conditions. Well, thank you. You know, I think that's a, a great comment to leave our listeners with. And you you mentioned stress. And so many people are concerned about the impact that stress has on their body. I encourage them to stop and think about the impact that stress has on their brain and their mind. Stay with us. We'll be right back and you can learn more. We'll be back after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. The New York Times reported that the benefits of eating a solid breakfast are hard to dispute. 
They cited emerging research that suggests another advantage to consistently eating breakfast is a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. A study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showed that people who skipped breakfast on a regular basis had a 21% higher risk of developing diabetes. We know that those who omit breakfast suffer setbacks in memory, mood, and energy levels, and eating the all-important first meal of the day is thought to stabilize blood sugar throughout the day. So choose a healthy and nutritious breakfast to start your day and to decrease your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at annettehammond.com. summertime and you know what that means attack of the mosquitoes other names for the mosquito are galley nipper katie nipper gabernapper and galley whopper a quote from the 1906 book the parson's boys asserts that galley nippers are so called because at each nip they took a gallon mitzi is a deceptively cute shortening of mosquito that might be heard in ohio If you're in Virginia and hear someone complaining about cousins, they might have annoying relatives or they might just be talking about mosquitoes. Why do they call mosquitoes cousins? Because there are so many and they stick so close. But whatever you call them, all this begs the question, why didn't Noah swat those two mosquitoes? It's marching down. Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for staying with us and and rejoining us. I think we have a lot more to talk about and a lot more of information to share to help you understand what you can do for yourself. And and I think that before we went to break, Dr. Donishgari, you were going to kind of give us some tips. What do you have to share with us? Well, you know, a lot of things come to mind for me and I mentioned the word advocate and for a lot of people when I say that they look at me like I I'm not sure what you mean. Do you mean stick up for myself? And partly so, yes. I mean stick up for yourself, but part of that is really understanding what what you need for yourself. And you know that's a big part of it and once you can understand what you need for yourself that will help you to advocate for yourself. And I'm not sure if that's something that you know he would have talked about but that's something that that resonates with me. So don't let me don't let me run with this. Anytime you want to jump in, please feel free. Um Uh, hi, Leo. I'm glad to be back. So, if you would pick up, I was just trying to share in some advice on what I think people can do to advocate for themselves, and and I know you have lots to say. Um, there are a number of things that needs to be done at the system level, and there are things to be done at the individual level. At the individual level, um, my advice is 
as I mentioned before the break, is for people to start taking control of their health. Knowing that the doctors and providers, they all are advisors uh, to help us to remain uh, healthy or identify the risks to our health. The next level is understand uh, the um, kind of how to navigate the, the system. The system, because it has become again dominated by the financial institutions, the, um, uh, the system is uh, providing fragmented care. Fragmented care, so you go to one doctor and the doctor says, I have to send you to you know, three other doctors. It is in that case that the concept of the health guardianship comes in. I would highly encourage everyone to connect to a primary care physician who is not employed by the hospital and therefore, or one of the big healthcare systems, and therefore their time is not marched down that, you know, they have to see 50, 60 patients a day. Uh, these practices are known as direct primary care or DPC. You go and pay somewhere between 75 to $100 per member, uh, per person per month, but that doctor becomes really your agent, your agent of health. And they can not only provide the cares you need on a daily, weekly basis and so forth, but they also become your advocate and your navigator, your health guardian uh, toward the rest of the needs you may have. If you need to go to see an endocrinologist, to see a, you know orthopedic surgeon and so forth. And it is through that interaction, which I call the primary agency of the doctor with you, then you can address your health concerns, whether your health concerns are you have intolerance to food, whether you have issues with the, the, you know, with the stress and lack of sleep, or your condition is, you know, uh, eating properly and not gaining weight and so forth. First thing we need to do is to secure a, a basically agency model or a time protected, unhurried time with a provider. And I'm afraid the Providers, the doctors who work for the big healthcare systems have gone beyond the point of no return uh, because their mandate is to basically bring more clinical volume to those hospital systems. So if you do this, then the next level becomes awareness of really the pricing. Uh, there is about 1,500 price variability in every market. You can go easily pay less than $500 to get an MRI of your back or your knee, or you may as well pay four to $5,000. So knowing about the price of what you're paying for, the services you're using, I would argue is the third leg of being aware and becoming an informed customer. Because if you don't do that, then you become the really the ping pong of the sick care system. They bounce you from this place to the other place, because again, the aim of this financial institutions called hospitals is to increase their, their revenue, to increase their, uh, you know, their bottom line. So it is through this gaining the control of not only your health, but also the finances of paying for your health care, that I would argue we would increase the role of the consumers or the customers in health care. And like anything else we have done in this great country, when the customer becomes engaged and involved, in the interaction, we bring efficiency, we bring higher quality, and we bring better results for ourselves. 
So what I hear you say is it really it's our response. Our, the healthcare system needs to be fixed. A question I have is, you know, can Congress do that? Or is what you're saying that we all need to take our responsibilities and fix what needs to be fixed for ourselves? Is um, definitely uh, government could play a role, but I'm afraid government is always reactive uh, rather than going and fixing something up front. The uh, good news is that the innovators and people who know and they're passionate about the uh, healthcare, they have started actually innovating and creating some models uh, where access to care is easier, access to care is uh, more affordable. And it is through these innovations that I think the existing uh, sick care system will be disrupted and will move toward more of a healthcare. So uh, very much like any other uh, great uh, value we have brought to the market, usually there's the innovators and people who think about the problems who bring out the first solutions. Very much like the Apple and Microsoft and Amazon of the world that over the past 30 years, the innovations that started from the garages, not from the federal government buildings. I believe the same process is starting at the, the healthcare. Uh, I believe the best way for our healthcare is to open a store for a free market competition where uh, providers basically compete based on the quality and fair pricing for the uh, customers. One of the problems that uh, I have explained in the book that happened is over the past 70 years, a third-party payer entered into the relationship between the doctor and, the, uh, and uh, us. The 1945, after World War II, it was the employers who entered as a third-party payer uh, with some serendipity because there was a wage freeze and so forth that I have explained again in the book. And then 1965 was a federal government who entered as a third-party payer. The problem with the entrance of the third-party payer is the consumer, you and I, we think that the uh, money we pay to the healthcare is only the, you know, the out-of-pocket or the co-insurance we pay. We have become ignorant or uh, has become basically uh, the, the total cost of care has become invisible to us. It is through these innovations that when the customer becomes in charge of, uh, basically uh, in, in control of the money, and there are some uh, tools that actually uh, President Trump in the previous administration, they unleashed it. Uh, they created the price transparency laws. They created the associations for healthcare. Some of these tools, when they get acted, they would unleash the power of the, uh, the individual in the marketplace. And I believe the solutions that will expand the role of the individual customers in the healthcare marketplace have the best chance to, uh, to mitigate this trans, uh, transformation from the sick care to the healthcare. So we all have access to affordable, high-quality healthcare um, in this wonderful country. The fact is we have the best doctors trained in the world in this country. We have some of the best technology we have in this country. We just have some systematic misalignment in the system, as I explained, the relationship between primary care and the doctors, but then the primary care and the patients who now has been intermediated with the hospitals. The 
Second misalignment is that this third-party payer is paying for this 50% of the waste from the pocket of you know you and I, from the pocket of the individuals. So it is this process of innovation and believing, uh, people believing that, yes, if you take the control of this in our hands, we can fix this, that the system will be fixed. Well, I think we all need to believe, you know, the, that the system will be fixed and the most growing population in the world today are the centurions, those over 100. And the older yes. population is dependent upon, meta, you know, Medicaid and Medicare. And, and, and I can imagine some of our listeners out there feeling like that they have no choice in that as is. What advice do you have for them? My advice is the same as those people who are not on Medicare and Medicaid. Become a customer of the health camp. Don't just remain as a consumer. If you're a consumer, the difference with the consumer and the customer is consumer just consumes. They don't know what, where the services come from, you know, how much it costs, and what's the quality. The customer is a, a person who is informed about the, the needs she or he has, what the price options are, and what are the best choices for herself and for her family. And the, again, over the past uh, few years, this information has exploded. Now, there, uh, by law, the hospitals are expected to uh, release the prices of services they provide. Even if you're at the Medicare, although the government is paying for that, but the fact is, the hospitals, the more procedures they do, the more money they make. So you don't want there to be their guinea pigs. You don't want to have unnecessary surgery and procedures and so forth. So when you go to a doctor's office, when you go for a service, come up, take someone with you. Number one is always two years is better. Two sets of years are better than one. Ask tough questions. Doctor, why are, why are you ordering this lab? Why do I need this surgery? Are there lesser invasive and lesser harmful uh, procedures or tests and so forth that I can have. Because again, remember, although most doctors do what they think is best for, the, for the pa their patients, but financially they're incentivized to order more to make more money for their employer and for themselves. So when they're asked by the informed customer that why I have to do this, then they put more of their doctor's hat on. They say, oh, yeah, maybe between this one and that one, probably we should go with the lesser invasive one or between the higher cost and lower cost, we can go with the lower cost. The, the, the issue of this being an active customer at the level of Medicare when the government is providing is really to prevent the harms. Unfortunately, the data shows that before pandemic, Medical errors have become the number three cause of death in the U.S. And the reason for that is this overzealous utilization of the surgeries and procedures and so forth. So my simple two-word answer to your question, Leah, is become an informed customer of healthcare. That is the only way out for us to remain healthy and, frankly, save our system. I love that. I love that you make a difference between a consumer and a customer because it is our choice. And I think that sometimes we feel overwhelmed. We feel beat down. We feel like that we don't have the power. And we do. We absolutely do. We have to step up and we have to own it. So I have another question for you. 
So a lot of times, many times, I've had clients come to me because uh, a lot of the clients that come to the Brain Performance Center maybe don't want to be on medication for anxiety or depression or ADHD, and they they want to get off of that medication. And they'll always ask me, well, you know, I've been told that I need to take this prescription. What is your opinion? And my opinion is, one, I'm not licensed to manage medication. My personal opinion is medication has not worked that well for me. So it would never be my first choice of treatment. And I'm so curious about that because clients will say, well, how do I tell my doctor that, that, you know, how do I tell my doctor I don't want to get on the medication? And my response is, well, I understand exactly what you just said. Those words are pretty clear. How would you respond to that question or to that issue? I would actually, frankly, respond the same you did. Uh, remember, the healthcare, what we do in the healthcare, everything we do in the healthcare, from the pills to procedures to tests, has a side effect. Has a side effect or a complication. There's a terminology used, and I've presented in the book called the reverse U philosophy. Reverse U says, too little of something and too much of the same thing, they both are bad. Few examples, too little, blood, too little of blood pressure is not good, you'll faint. Too much of blood pressure is not good. Too little of sugar is not good, too much of sugar is not good. Too little of food is not good, too much of food is not good. And the healthcare is the same. <coughs> is too little of access to healthcare or doing things is is not good, you know, you're uh, living subpar, and too much of uh, sick care services, healthcare uh, things are bad. There's no question that, again, these are not my research, these are independent research performed by, you know, the uh, Dartmouth Institute of Health. One third, one third, at least one third of the services, meaning medications, procedure tests that are prescribed today's world, are unnecessary not only are unnecessary, they're harmful. So I have an 89-year-old mom. I love her to death. When I go to, she had a little episode about a few months ago, went to the hospital. When we came out of the hospital, they had put her on eight type of medications. I went through her medication, eliminated six of them, and she only remains on two medications because the side effects and the complications of those medications far well, exceed the benefits of that. I just so appreciate your answer because you are a scientist and a medical doctor, and and I, I am not, but I I love feeling and knowing that the opinion and the thoughts are shared in that community, and I, that gives me hope. That gives me hope that we can start to operate a different way because what I have found in my center is oftentimes when medication is brought into the situation, it can make it worse. Mm-hmm. 100%, 100%. Many of, again, this, what I said, one third of the death in the U.S. is related to medical uh, medical errors. And these are medical errors that have led to death. There are a ton more medical, basically, complications, side effects that happens on a daily thing because this whole overzealous prescription of uh, medications and procedures and so forth. Um, and there is a ton of scientific data supporting this fact that 
even the medications that they go through the FDA approval, when it comes to the general market, has to be dealt with with extreme precautions because it takes many, many years, if not decades, for a medication to declare really its benefits or you know uh, harms. So I, as a physician myself, I am extremely, extremely cautious before I give medication to anyone, including myself and my family members. And I said, I, when a member of family goes to a you know, a normal doctor, again, the doctors within the hospital-based sick care system, I come in, I go through their medication, and easily I eliminate about one-third of the medications. I think you know, just opening up the conversation on medication is because that's where it starts for many of us. We're, we are, um, it's interesting to me to think that if you never got started down that path, where would you go? Uh, you started on the path of what? The medication, you mean? The medication. Yeah, there are, again, is, going back to the being an active customer, there are endless uh, resources of information. I would get second opinion, third opinion. I would, uh, because our bodies are really the most valuable assets we have. You know, if someone, any salesperson comes to your front door and says, here it is, Leah, put this on your doors. You don't just go and put it on it. You know, you... Is, is the medications are every single medications. Again, our knowledge of our body is has advanced significantly, but still we are limited. We identify one biochemical path and we come up with one medication. We take him through some clinical trials. The largest clinical trials have, you know, enrolled about 1,000 to 2,000, you know, members on them uh, or participants because they're very expensive. They come up with some biostatistical significance that shows some difference. But really where the rubber hits the road, when that medication is released to the market and uh, average people who were not participating in those clinical uh, uh, studies, they basically take them. Um, I'm not trying to bash the medication or the efforts of our wonderful pharmaceutical companies who spend you know, endless resources to bring solutions. But I want to go... Uh, from a kind of an unnecessary care and wastefulness of the system because the doctors are so shortcut for their times. And um, they again, the average time the doctor sees a patient in the U.S. is less than five minutes. And therefore, it's much easier for them to write a prescription than sit down and for half an hour to understand what are the things you can do in your life that could basically have the same impact or if not better of that medication. That is where I'm trying to get at. Just don't take it with the face value. Do your job. Do your act on your responsibility as an informed customer. And that is great advice. And, you know, I was listening to you and I was thinking, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying I'd like to I'd like to book an appointment with you and I'm happy to pay cash where we can just sit down and spend time and talk about what my options are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is uh, if you're want to spend uh, money in uh, investing in your future, spend that money in investing your health. Absolutely. I just, I think that that's, what is it, the, the saying, health is wealth? And I, I believe Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And that is really the the motto my, of health guardianship. As I said, it's, uh, you said the title of the book is the health guardianship, the remedy to the sick care system. As you know, 
I have founded a company based on the same concept as we call is called Bowtie Medical. And our motto at the Bowtie Medical is our aim is for our members never become a patient. And we have eliminated time as a constraint in interaction between us and our members, because that is the most valuable thing we can give to our members to spend the time to discuss what their needs are and how we can improve their life overall. Because at the foundation, we believe that all of us have the biological potential, biological capacity to live a, a fulfilled life beyond 100 without chronic conditions. I love that. You know, and we we both have referenced the book a couple of times. We've got a little about three minutes left. Can we talk just a little bit about the book? I know it's on Amazon. Where else is it available? It's on Amazon. You know, the easiest place people can find the book is called Health Guardianship, the Remedy to the Secure System. Uh, it's, uh, it was, came out in the uh, uh, end of last year and soon became actually number one Amazon bestseller in healthcare. And it really goes through the history of uh, the how the during the 20th century our healthcare system was built, why public health was built, why the hospitals, you know, became from the from the charity houses of the late 19th century they became these multi-billion-dollar financial institutions. What were the learnings from COVID? The COVID as the biggest health crisis of the last century. What we learned from them. What are the new technology that has basically created democratization of information? A lot of people consult Dr. Google for some of the health uh, health questions because they can't find the, the normal doctor to ask them. And we know do take Dr. Google is a lot better than TikTok. A lot right. of, I mean, yeah. people are yeah. consulting TikTok, and that yeah, yeah. it's not yeah. a search it's, engine; it's a social yeah, media because, engine. Yeah, it's because is again this is the, the dysfunction of the sick care system. So, and how we can take this major, major advances we've made over the past century and really convert our system from a right side of the bow tie to the left side, from a sick care mentality, from a, a what I call the provider centric, which means that you have to come to my time of my work because I'm the doctor from nine to five. Whereas every other industry has turned into a consumer centric delivery model. I am there available to you whenever you need me. And uh, how we can use the virtual delivery of care toward that uh, delivering consumer-centric services. So explain this and explains really how we can, uh, again, disrupt the existing system that is stuck in its own mud uh, because it's becoming increasingly unaffordable to a healthcare that is affordable. And I propose that we can provide 90 to 95% of our care needs on your cell phone for less than $100 per month. Uh, per month. So wow. the book explains. That's not to interrupt you. We've got less yeah. than a minute left. And I yeah. want to, I just want to point out to people that if they want to learn more about Bowtie Medical, you do have a website. And if yeah. people reach out to you on that website or if they look at you on LinkedIn, will they get a response or do they need to Absolutely. Okay. Uh, absolutely. As you could see, I'm filled with passion about this new movement. I think this is the next best era where in our great country we will uh, leave alone the waste and the dysfunctionality of the old system. We create a new 
brilliant new system will become the and beacon of the world. And that is a fabulous, thank you. That is such a fabulous note to end on. Yep. Again, I want all our listeners to go. And if you want to learn no, more, remember Bowtie Medical. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.